Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, may we taste and see your goodness tonight by the sweetness of your word. We thank you, Lord, for your word. May you open the eyes of our hearts to know you so that we would know to love you and obey you and trust you. We pray, Lord, may you renew our minds tonight for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most exciting events that someone can witness is when a man proposes to a woman. For those of you who are married or who are engaged, do you still remember that day? It must have been a beautiful day. Now, there are many styles in proposals, but there has been only one single action that never changes throughout the years. And what is that? It's when the man gives the ring to a woman. Of course, she has to say yes for us to have this picture. But the point is that the engagement ring is very important. Men don't just buy fake plastic diamond rings that you can buy on Amazon for $10. Yes, I researched how much is a fake diamond ring. But how do you know if a diamond ring is real? How do you know if something is true and not a false one? Well, in the diamond world, there are five marks or five characteristics that, make, that shows the authenticity of the diamond. They're called the five C's. Do you still remember that? For, for the married guys, maybe not. I did not until I did my teaching. But the five C's are the color, the carrot, the cut, the clarity, and the certification. For those of you who are thinking to be engaged, remember those five C's. Every man understands that his future bride deserves something authentically beautiful. That he will not give a fake diamond ring, but a real one. In a similar way, Christ loves his bride, his church. Christ desires that his church would have real, true men of God. Not fake ones, not pretenders. And this is why we, ha- we arrive in this passage with Paul's exhortation to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 16, we find five marks or five characteristics of a man of God so that he can live out his gospel calling and proclaim the gospel word of Jesus Christ. Here are the five F's, if you will. Verse 11, the man of God flees from sin and follows after the pursuits of Christ. Verse 12, he fights for and fastens onto the gospel calling of Christ. In verses 13 to 16, the man of God is faithful to God's word for the glory of Christ. The big idea of this passage reveals 
what a man of God should look like, both in his personal walk and in his public ministry. Now let's look at the first phrase of our passage. But as for you, O man of God, it starts with the word but, which is a, which is a contrast conjunction. Then we have to look at the previous passage in verses 3 to 10. The big idea there is that Timothy should, not, should be a contrast to the false teachers who were false men of God. These, men of, uh, these false men of God teach incorrect doctrine, promote unhealthy teachings, and possess sickly cravings for controversy. They are corrupt in the mind, greedy for gain. They have abandoned their faith and have inflicted their own wounds. Simply put, the opposite of the man of God is a man of greed, a man of materialism, a man of the flesh, a man of the world, a man of their own man, a man of false doctrine, a man of sinful desires. Paul tells Timothy, you are God's man. Paul uses this title to emphasize Timothy's calling in his ministry and to remind him that he is God's man. This means you are the very possession of God. Now, this may be addressed to Timothy directly, but in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Timothy is addressed as a leader whose way of life is to be an example to all believers. There is a sense in which all believers are summoned by these words. What Paul writes is to be followed by all of God's people. For us believers, we are men and women of God. That is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. The gospel teaches us that God has called us to salvation. He not only justified us, we were adopted into his family through Christ. Christ redeemed us. Christ bought us by his blood. We belong to him. What a privilege to be called a man of God or a woman of God, or God's man, or God's woman. It is a possessive phrase indicating that we belong to God in a special and unique way. So what are the marks of a man and woman of God? What are their characteristics? The first point is, the man of God flees from sin and follows after the pursuits of Christ. Flee these things means to run away from sin, especially the love of money. Paul states that material gain is not the true end of the Christian faith. The man of God must flee from these things. And there are many commands in the New Testament about fleeing. Flee from idolatry. That's in 1 Corinthians 10.14. Flee youthful lust. 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18. 
And we have many examples in the Bible who ran away from sin and who, and who did not. One man is Joseph. Joseph ran away from the sexual seduction of Potiphar's wife. Now, observe the text. Joseph didn't say, Oh, Mrs. Potiphar, that is wrong. You know, adultery is wrong. Let me show you in scripture. Let's talk over coffee. Why are you doing this? This is wrong. Joseph did not do that. He ran away. He even left his cloak, even to the point of being imprisoned. Now, as for King David, did he run away? He lingered. He watched. He should have run away. And we all know the story. Men, do we linger and watch when we get tempted? Or do we run away? The command for us believers is not just to stop sinning, but to follow after Christ's pursuits. For every no in God's command, there is a corresponding yes. And we see that pattern in Scripture, in the Gospel, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe the good news. James 4, 7-8, resist the devil and draw near to God. Ephesians 4, 22-24, put off your old self and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The gospel teaches us that these qualities, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, they are all exemplified by Christ. The gospel teaches us that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, but we can't live a life of unholiness. This is why in Romans thirteen fourteen it says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Essentially, he's saying, put on Christ, pursue holiness. Follow after Christ-likeness. We need to flee from sinful desires and follow after Christ-likeness. We need to run to Christ. Last year, our family went to the central coast uh, for vacation. And in our hotel, we found a lot of signs that looked like something like this. The first thing that came up to my mind was that, oh boy, if there is an earthquake, I have to run to the higher ground. I know there is no way that my family will be able to survive the tidal waves that could go as high as 50 feet and could go as fast as 50 miles per hour. I need to run towards the higher ground. It's it's not only for me but also for my family. In a similar way, we have to run away from the devil, the world, and sinful desires that are like tidal waves that can swallow us and can kill us spiritually. Running away alone will not save us, 
We have to run towards the higher ground. A higher ground that can be hit by the waves, but it's unmovable. For us believers, our higher ground, our strong tower, our rock is Jesus Christ. Our higher ground is Jesus Christ. Run to Him. So how does this look like? If your co-workers start complaining about your company, about your boss, or about the leadership, flee from the temptation to join in and pursue thankfulness. Be thankful that you have a job. Pursue Christ-like love. Pray for your co-workers. Pray for your boss. When you accidentally see something seductive on the internet, flee from it. If you have to get out of your room, if you have to delete that social media app that's causing you to sin, pursue righteousness, pray, run to Christ. And 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Pursue godliness along with other believers. If you are struggling with covetousness or the worries of life or the love of money, seek first the kingdom of God and give sacrificially. Jesus says that the remedy to the love of money is to be generous. That's in Luke chapter 8, verse 33. Excuse me, I just have to drink water. Brothers and sisters, are we fleeing from sinful desires? Do we even consider if our desires are in accordance with God's word? Do we pray and ask God to give us Christ-like desires to pursue? And the call for us, it's a continual pursuit. pursuit. It is a lifelong process. It doesn't stop. And this is why Paul's next exhortation is to fight the good fight and hold on to the eternal life. In verse 12, it says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the, pre- in the presence of many witnesses. Paul exhorts Timothy to fight the good fight and to take hold of the eternal life. This is Paul's call to Timothy for daily perseverance. For us believers, life is a struggle. Because it is against the flesh and the world, and ultimately against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's in Ephesians 6.12. The word fight here in the Greek word is agonizomai. Agonizomai. Where we got the word agonize. It is to contend for a prize. And it is generally connected to athletic metaphor or military meaning. And the word faith, faith here means the word. It is the sound doctrine. This is the true gospel message. And we have to fight for the true gospel because sin distorts the gospel message. We are to guard it and to live it out because we are the household of God. 
the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And the next is, take hold or fasten on to the eternal life. What does Paul mean about eternal life, calling, and confession? The word calling is about the effectual call of a sovereign God to salvation. What Paul is saying to Timothy is that you were called to salvation, which is eternal life. And you confessed a gospel confession before many witnesses of that eternal life. He says, you have confessed to being a possessor of eternal life. Now, live in light of eternity. We believers have to live in light of eternity. Just two verses before this, in verse 10, Paul said that there were those who didn't live in light of eternity. They loved money. And they put their security in money. In other words, they lived for the temporal things of this world. As a result, they shipwrecked their faith. What a stern warning from our Lord. Let's fight the good fight of the faith and live in light of eternity. Last summer, we witnessed the best athletes of the world compete in the Olympics. These athletes, they knew, even though there was a, the coronavirus, the pandemic, they went to the Olympics knowing it will not be easy. They have to battle, persevere, and have disciplined struggles with a goal to win. In a similar way for us believers, there is a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual race. We are spiritual athletes striving for a goal who live in light of eternity. Paul lives out and proclaims the gospel. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but with an imperishable. And Paul lived in light of eternity. In three to five years after he wrote 1 Timothy, before he was executed, he told Timothy in the second book, or in the next book, in 2 Timothy 4, 7 to 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Brothers and sisters, do we have a Christ-like mindset that we need to persevere and fight for the gospel calling in our lives? Perhaps you are enduring something right now in your fight for godliness. I want to encourage you don't be weary. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse, verses 1 to 3, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. He didn't say looking to ourselves, looking to our spiritual leaders. No, he said looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Before we go to the third and final point, let's do a quick review. The man of God flees from sin and follows after the pursuits of Christ. The man of God fights for and fastens onto the gospel calling of Christ. And the man of God is faithful to God's word for the glory of Christ. Timothy was given a gospel charge to keep the commandment. There is accountability from God. But it's God who sustains him because God is the one who gives life. There is a repeating phrase in our passage, the good confession that can be found in verse 12 and in verse 13. Paul refers to John chapter 18 verses 33 to 37. Knowing that it would cost him his own life, Jesus confesses to Pilate that he was indeed the King and Messiah. Paul draws a parallel between Jesus appearing before a hostile ruler, Pilate, and Timothy bearing witness before hostile people who are the false teachers inside and outside of the church. And remember Pastor Bark's sermon last Sunday that talks about that there will be those who will not bow their knee to Christ. Hence, they are opposed to the gospel. The good confession is the true gospel, that Jesus is the King. He is the Messiah. And if we have confessed that Jesus is King, that He is our Lord, is He the one ruling our hearts? How do we know if Christ is ruling our lives? We see the evidence in the next verse. If we keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, the commandment is God's word. The commandment is God's word. Men, are you keeping God's word? Are you obeying God's word? What Paul is saying, Timothy, you have to walk in purity pertaining to your personal life, and the integrity of how you proclaim the word, the sound doctrine. This is not just an intellectual agreement to a doctrine, but it is to live it out. It is to obey. And how long should you do it? It says there, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not about how we start it, but it's how we finish the race. The calling for us believers is not easy, but there is a motivation for us. What's that motivation for us? In the next verse, there is a doxology, 
a doxology is basically a hymn of praise to our God. The man of God highly esteems Christ. He wants to glorify Christ, not himself, not like the self-centered false teachers. Paul writes a doxology in the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 17, and here it shows that the greatest motivating factor for a man of God is the God whom he serves. The greatest motivating factor for a man of God is the God whom he serves. If we remember the gospel, how God has saved wretched sinners like us, that will motivate us. Paul is an example of this. As you can see in chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, there is a gospel motivation. Paul says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are, that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The man of God understands and embraces the gospel. How God saved him from his sins and from the wrath. In the gospels, we see converted sinners naturally worshiping Christ. We see Christ exalting responses like the washing of his feet with expensive perfume. Turning away from their sins and trusting him willing to leave their boats, essentially leaving their careers, even dying for Him, ultimately trusting and obeying Christ. How has been our worship of Christ? Have we been highly esteeming Christ and His Word? Or has the world and all its worldly wisdom and all its worldly desires Has that been bigger than Christ? Perhaps like Paul, we need to remember how the king of kings left his throne, wore the crown of thorns, died on the cross to bear all our sins because of his great love for us while we were yet sinners. In closing, at the end of the day, The man or woman of God is a man man or a woman of Christ. He or she is Christ-like. And the man of God flees from sin and follows after the pursuits of Christ. The man of God fights for and fastens on to the gospel calling of Christ. And the man of God is faithful to the glory of Christ. The calling for us believers is not just to agree intellectually, but to follow Christ. That's discipleship. 
these exhortations from God are not mere obligations. As a matter of fact, they are invitations to us to the fullness of life because God is the giver of life. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And once we do that, we'll be like a true diamond reflecting the shining glory of our Lord, our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the honor, glory, power, and praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh dear Heavenly Father, indeed we have tasted and seen your goodness upon us because of your word. May we treasure this word that will flow out of an obedience, out of a loving obedience to you. I pray for myself and for my brothers here. May you help us to flee from sin and to follow after the pursuits of Christ. May you help us fight for and fasten on to the gospel calling of Christ. And lastly, may you help us to be faithful to your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.